In 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes and he says, Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Many years ago, I worked for the Department of Social Services, and I was tasked to write what was called a Memorandum of Understanding. A Memorandum of Understanding is, isn't a legal document, but it's a strong statement of mutual understanding. Paul is writing a strong statement, perhaps his last statement. Some people have called this Paul's last will and testament. But in this section that we just read, the theme of the entire book of 2 Timothy is brought to our attention. Paul has devoted his life to Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and his love for Jesus, his service to Jesus, and his ministry to Jesus has been his lifelong theme, if you will. It's been the expression of his heart. He did this in Ephesus. He did this in Philippi. He did this in Corinth. He did this in Rome. And Paul has preached and taught the great themes of salvation by grace. And now he is in a prison. And he's probably awaiting execution. And his critics have questioned his apostolic authority and message. And a growing number of people were departing from his carefully laid foundations. And so the theme of this book is found in this section. He's talking about holding on to truth when everybody else is letting go. It's about holding on to the truth when everyone else is letting go. And you need to, to, to just stop and think about that for just a moment because you're going to be challenged because there are going to be times in your life where you're wondering whether or not you're going to be able to continue. You're going to be tempted to let go. And God is calling you to hold on. William MacDonald wrote, quote, this theme may be stated as individual responsibility in a time of collective failure, he's already said in this book that everyone who's supposed to be with him has abandoned him. And so, again, he is going to provide three admonitions to Timothy. Three admonitions one is to focus on essential things. Focus on the essentials. Number two, he's going to faithfully study God's word. He's going to ask Timothy to focus on the essentials. Second, he's going to ask him to faithfully study the word of God. And then he is going to ask Timothy to forsake false words. And so Paul understands, he understands that fidelity to the truth is going to have to take place in the context of suffering and difficulty, which he himself is experiencing, because we can remain faithful to the truth of the gospel in Christ Jesus, even though there's a growing, swelling rank of people who have compromised the gospel or abandoned the, the truth. And so part of what Timothy has to do, he wants to do, he needs to do, is to pass the torch, to, Paul wants to pass the torch to Timothy. 
And so he's going to give him the first reminder to focus on the essentials. That's the admonition. Look at verse 14. Remind them of these things. Charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit or to the ruin of the hearers. Paul's admonition begins with the reminder of these things. When you're looking at the text, you should ask yourself, what things? What, th what things is he talking about? He's talking about the mega themes of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Paul's charge to Timothy in chapter 1, verses 3 through 18. The path of, of an approved servant in the day of apostasy in chapter 2. These mega themes of holding on when everyone is letting go in order to hold on you're going to have to understand what it is that you're doing and why you're doing it it's the gospel it's Jesus it's the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus this this is the Jesus who's changed everything and so the word remind again is in the present imperative Remind them, but it's also in a continuous action. The implication being remind them and keep reminding them. And that expression, charging them before the Lord, provides the motive and the spirit behind the admonition. To the ruin, he says, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers. That word ruin is a strong word that each and every one of you are familiar with, even if you don't have advanced understanding of Greek, even if you can't parse a, ver a Greek verb. It's the word catastrophe. If I said to you, hey, have you ever heard that word? Catastrophe. You know that word. It's come down in our modern usage with the ancient meaning of ruin or destruction. You don't have to search the headlines to see Australia on fire or to think about the fires that California has experienced. And you understand what the word ruin means. And that's part of what he's talking about, the catastrophe that takes place when you abandon biblical truth. So in context, it carries the meaning of the idea to subvert or to strive or to overthrow. And the expre expression, strive about words, it's actually really interesting. Logo, makeo. You know the word logos or logo? It's the word for word. Makeo is the word for fight. It literally means to fight with words. It means to engage not in a food fight, but in a word fight. And so the expression is unique in the Greek New Testament, but it's found in its noun form in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, where, where Paul talks about the false teachers in their pride, knowing nothing, who obsess over words, that meaning word battles. That when you get into a fight, a war of words, almost invariably there's collateral damage. In 1 Timothy 6.4, the consequences, the collateral damage includes envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds who are destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul had told Timothy in the first letter, from such withdraw yourself. And so here, the consequence of withdrawing drawing from biblical truth and embracing never-ending word fights is ruin, catastrophe. And by the way, this is the first of three warnings that Paul will give to Timothy to please stop it. Please stop, avoid, avoid useless arguments. Now just pause for a minute and think about what's happening. Does Paul reject doctrinal details? No. 
Does Paul's condemning the strife that's generated from conversations that have no real or lasting value. He's talking about withdrawing yourself from conversations that confuse people and divide people because there really are doctrinal essentials and non-essentials. I had the great, great privilege of having Dr. Norm Geisler come and speak at our church. He was written a book over doctrinal essentials. And so when you talk about what are the essentials and what are the non-essentials, what really, really matters and what doesn't really matter, and of course, all of the things that you've already come to know, the reality of God, the person of God, the person of Jesus, the person of the Holy Spirit, the reality of salvation by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. There are certain things that are essential, the authority and the integrity of the word, what the Bible has to say about stuff. So arguing over non-essentials can split churches, undermine ministry goals, and wound the innocent. Paul doesn't suggest that we ignore false teachers or false teaching. In 1 Timothy, Paul, Paul had written, command certain men not to teach false doctrine. These promote controversy rather than God's word, which is by faith. That's in 1 Timothy 1.3. But the, the false teachers were forever preoccupied with myths and genealogies in that ancient world. They would be the first to tune in to the ancient alien channel on the history channel. Hey, what if it's possible? What if aliens visited? The, what if we are, have been seeded by aliens? And so you can imagine, I, I literally had a call on my radio program. One of the questions was, what does the Bible have to say about the earth being flat? And I said, you know, the Bible doesn't address the shape of the earth. Does the Bible teach that the earth is flat? What do you think the answer is? Yeah, the answer is no. The Bible doesn't teach that the earth is flat. And I said, hey, tell me your name. James, where are you calling from? Aurora. Hey, James from Aurora, are you calling me on a cell phone? Yeah. You realize your cell phone has GPS, right? Yeah. You realize satellites are circling, not a flat earth, but a round earth, in order for you to actually make the phone call to ask me this question. <laughs> Click. <laughs> By the way, we have an article at gotquestions.org. What does the Bible have to say about a flat earth? Now, the false teachers are forever preoccupied with things that don't really matter, with myths and genealogy. They fought over details that aren't found in the scripture. And so where does this obsession with non-essential come from? It comes from their own mind or curiosity or some other source. And so believers who are caught up in these quarrels about words waste time and energy and resources. Now again, for the person who says, well, don't you think word definitions matter? Yes. Do you think the context matters? Yes. In the first chapter, Paul pleaded with Timothy, remember God's call on your life, chapter one, the resources of God's grace, chapter one, the reward found at God's throne, chapter one, and that, guess what? Suffering is a part of the pastor's call. We endure suffering, and it is a privilege. And some of us are more privileged than others. At the Colorado Western Conservative Summit, I got to meet Andrew Brunson, who was thrown in a Turkish prison and stayed there for three years. At the FBI, I worked with one of the original Iranian hostages who was taken from our embassy and held captive for 444 days. There are people, even as I'm speaking to you right now, who are being imprisoned in East Africa and Asia and India. And guess what? Right, even as you and I are talking right at this very moment, they are in a prison cell and they're praying for God's grace and for God's mercy and for the effective ministry. For the person who says, None of this matters. It, it does matter. 
Some of us are more privileged than others. Andrew Brunson said that when he was in a Turkish prison, his mother words came to him because they got a letter to him and his mother just simply said, it's your turn to stand in line of the people who've gone before you. There's going to be a little bit of a setback from time to time. And so there's lots of reasons why it's okay to talk about things that seem fun to talk about, like the flat earth, and you have to address the issue, but it can't preoccupy your life. So Paul calls on Timothy to remind believers, don't argue, don't strive over issues that won't profit, that won't help, that won't contribute to the maturity of those people who are listening. Be careful, be careful not to tear people down with your words, but build them up. And so he gives the second admonition, the second reminder, faithfully study the word of truth. Look what it says in verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. When we had our question and answer session, a young man came up and said, does all of the Old Testament have something to do with Jesus? And I gave the answer. Yes, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, in them you have life, but they are those which testify of me. The reality is, and listen carefully, the reality is that the scripture properly taught from Genesis to Revelation is going to include a revelation of Jesus that points people to Jesus, whether you're talking about creation in the book of Genesis or the fall in the book of Genesis and the problem of sin and the necessity of a savior at some point like Spurgeon said go to your text and then make a beeline to the cross point people to Jesus the pastor helps administer the ordinances of the church like baptism and 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 the Lord's Supper The pastor is supposed to be a man of prayer, 1 Timothy chapter 2. The pastor guides and guards the sheep, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The pastor watches over souls of others in his own soul. The pastor leads and feeds the flock and is an example to all, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Peter 5, 3. The pastor preaches first second timothy four the pastor faithfully studies the bible the word of truth here in verse 15 and so if you look at verse 15 be diligent to present yourself approved to god a worker who does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth every single word in this powerful verse demands and deserves careful exposition But in the interest of time, I'm going to offer these basic comments. Paul reminds Timothy to present himself for God's approval. The pastor or the Bible teacher who doesn't get right with God in his or her personal life does so at their own risk. The first step has to be self-examination. The text is important, and we've emphasized the text. And remember, we're talking about expository preaching where the, the text itself is the master. But guess what? You're a servant to the master. It was R.A. Torrey who said in his first, that the first task of biblical interpretation and exposition Get right with God. I'm not saying if you binge watch Stranger Things on Netflix that you're in sin and that, that, that it's a problem. Uh, by the way, I watched Stranger Things on Netflix and loved it. So what does this mean? What does it mean to present yourself to God? Again, look what what the text says. The preacher's concern isn't the approval of men, but the approval of God. 
How do we carry the powerful truths that are given in the Bible? How do we contain and then communicate the gospel if we're harboring the toxic waste of unconfessed sin, of unrepentant sin? Only a fool would dare teach this passage and not ask this question, am I right with God? Is there something that I've ignored or avoided? And let me just be clear here. We're all traumatized by sin. We all go to the emergency room when we find ourselves in trouble. Three weeks ago, my wife, we were getting ready to hand over the church to my son. My wife had prepared a tea. She was at one of her favorite restaurants with her girlfriends, and she had a stroke. The right side of her body didn't work. She couldn't communicate. She didn't want to go to the doctor. They called me. I went to the restaurant. We called an ambulance. I rode with her to the emergency room in the back of this ambulance. She's traumatized. That, that's what we live in a broken world. We're subject to the frailties and the difficulties. But of course, we pray and thank God my wife is fine. Symptoms went away. Doctors kept her overnight, said you need to be careful. She walked out of the hospital and she went to her tea and she spoke to over a hundred women about the love of God, the love of Jesus, and encouraged these women to continue to follow and love and serve the Lord. How do we secure the approval of God? Now, I want to be just very clear here. Securing the approval of God doesn't mean don't do this, don't do that. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with those who do. To secure the approval of God, the only way you could ever secure the approval of God is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just be clear here. Some of you have made mistakes and you have made decisions that maybe have caused you to address the theme of this passage. You're thinking about giving up and letting go. And here part of the point of the text is trying to encourage you to hold on. Your approval comes from Jesus. According to the book of Ephesians, you're chosen, adopted, and accepted. You're accepted in the beloved. You're not accepted because you're a perfect person. You're not accepted because you've never done anything wrong. You're not accepted because of this or that. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to give you an excuse for sin. I'm giving you the encouragement and the invitation to turn from your sin, to embrace the ministry that God has appointed for you. Because guess what? It's a broken world and people need prayer and they need help and they need the message of hope. You are chosen and adopted and accepted. Your approval comes from Jesus. And what else secures the approval of God? You're a workman. This is the diligent worker who toils to the point of exhaustion. And that's the workman. That's the meaning of the word. This isn't a person who just gets up and does a job. This is a person who gets up and works and works to the point of exhaustion. Athletes train to the point of exhaustion. Soldiers train to the point of exhaustion. Farmers get up early and they go to bed at night late. If you don't study your Bible to the point of exhaustion, you're probably doing it wrong. And that's the focus of our study. The word of truth. We rightly divide the word of truth. And over and over again, you've been told what the word of truth is. It's that revelation that's in your hand. It's the Bible. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's what the old uh, prophets talked about. The, 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 the law, the writings, and the prophets. 
This is the Bible. This is the very precious letter that Timothy held in his hand. And even at this point, he may or may not have understood that in his hand, he was reading the very word of truth. And you cannot secure the approval of God by mishandling this word of truth. The Lord absolutely knows that we're human. The Lord knows that we're capable of making mistakes. The Lord knows that we can be led astray. We know that we can be deceived by false statements. We know that we can draw false conclusions. The treasures in the Bible can only be found by those who dig for them. And every Bible teacher should if he or she doesn't know, every Bible teacher should understand what's at stake. That English word approved, remember, is based on the root word prove. The adjective is dokimos. It's related to the verb dokimazo. This is the word that was used in the ancient world to test, to try, to prove. It would be like if you're taking a metal and you want to fire it in silver or gold and purify it. It was often used in relationship to the purification process of purifying metals. And so there is a sense in which the minister first proves before being approved. Art and Gingrich define dakamas as approved by a test. Approved by a test in the sense of tried and true and genuine. And it could very well be that some of you are being tested. Will you let go or will you hold on? My husband doesn't support me in the ministry. My wife doesn't support me in the ministry. This doesn't, I'm not getting the support. Hey, guess what? Uh, my children have gone off the rails. Hey, guess what? Things are bad. You don't understand how bad it is in my church. You don't understand how bad it is in the circumstances that I face. You don't understand that I've come to this conference asking myself the question whether or not I'm going to do this for one more week. And guess what? Sometimes you'll face opposition and criticism and difficulty. You remember what Satan wants to do. Satan either wants to make you ignorant of God's will or make you impatient with God's will. What is God's will? Whatever God's will is, I absolutely guarantee you that the will of God in Christ Jesus is found in this Bible. And if you read it carefully, you'll notice that it's going to have a lot to say about you. Well, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you, that you flee sexual immorality. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Walk in humility. Walk appropriately. You can't rightly divide the word of truth if you pour into it meaning that it never had. Let me put it to you plainly. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. That's pretty clear, isn't it? The Bible can never mean what it never meant. And so, any given book in the Bible or passage in the Bible can never mean what it never meant. And because there are only two ways you can study the Bible, you can study it with your mind made up or you can study it with a view of letting it make up your mind. Which will you do? Lord, I think I understand what this means. I think I know what I want it to mean, but Lord, please help me. Please speak to me. Speak to my heart. Make sure that I've understood what it is that I'm, I'm reading. By the way, the expression rightly dividing translates a Greek verb. It's 
as many of you know, in the Greek language, there's a prefix and there's often a root word and there's a suffix. And so sometimes they're really long, like ortho, mounta. Ortho is straight. So ortho mounta means to cut straight. And so when he's using that term, rightly dividing the word, it means to cut straight. And what exactly are we cutting straight? In the ancient world, this was a word that was used to describe digging a furrow or digging a ditch. It would be like in the ancient world, you would have a a bit of land. And some of you who've traveled here in the Temecula Valley, you'll see farms and you'll see row after row of grapes or of other kinds of fruit. They'll take the land and they'll apportion it, if you will. And so it meant to describe a straight field, a furrow, a straight road. In the Septuagint, it was used in the sense of direction. Make a path straight, make it plain, make it accessible. One lexicon translates it, teach straight. The stonemason, the tent maker, required exact measurements. You've all heard the expression, measure, or measure twice, cut once. Think about what you're doing. When you're dealing with a project or you're building a model, you want to make sure that you have exact measurements. Precision and accuracy are required for Bible teachers. This isn't something like, well, you know, this is close enough for government work. You're handling the Word of God. This is the precious revelation of the Holy Spirit to a broken world. Several scholars take this metaphor to mean that the minister makes straight paths for his people to tread. Vincent writes, quote, the thought is that the minister of the gospel is to present the truth rightly, not abridging it, not handling it like a charlatan, not making it a matter of wordy strife, E.K. Simpson writes, cut a road, and then adds, enjoin on every teacher of the word straightforward exegesis. So what are the most basic and fundamental skills necessary to cut it straight, to correctly analyze it, to rightly divide it, to skillfully treat it, not just with respect, with reverence. You know, I've been in churches where people will say, please stand as we read the word of God. I, I like that. I've grown up in Calvary Chapel. I love Calvary Chapel. It makes perfect sense to me that we pay so much attention to this Bible. But I'm a little bit concerned that maybe we're distancing ourselves from a sense of respect of this word that we say out loud and we say to one another. So what are the basic fundamental things? I'm going to go through some things very quickly. You might want to either look at the tape later. I might post this at my website at genojuracy.com or calvarycsd.org. You can find it there. Number one, I've already talked about, get right with God. Number two, be determined to find out what God intended to teach and not what you want him to teach. Number three, get the most accurate text. Get the most accurate text. Some of you will never, ever, ever have advanced degrees in Greek and Hebrew. It's fairly intimidating if you hear someone say, now please don't attempt to do what I'm about to do, but I'm going to parse this Greek verb. Most of us can't parse a Greek verb. You can rightly divide the word of truth. It's helpful to have an understanding of the original languages. It's helpful, not harmful. But there are literally thousands of people who have devoted their lives to giving you resources to get the most accurate text. Some of you understand 
the, the simple things about textual analysis, you know that some Bibles are word for word and some Bibles are thought for thought. Both have value. John talked about reading the text in multiple translations. I have a friend. If you are familiar with other languages, if you're bilingual, you understand that sometimes things get lost in translation. Imagine I'm having a conversation with Fausto Fluker, and I say, dude, I'm starving, let's split. Let's, let's go to In-N-Out. Two Russians have visited our conference. They start thumbing through their English-Russian guide. Dude, person pretending to be cowboy. Starving, hungry to point of death. Split, separate. Why are two people pretending to be cowboys, hungry to the point of death? They're going to leave each other. So do we translate this what I said, or do I translate this what I mean? And because all of you are mostly Americans, you go, what, what did he say? He said, hey, I'm hungry, let's go and eat. Well, then why didn't he just say that? There are idiomatic expressions, figures of speech, there are metaphors, there are hyperbole and allegory. So number one, get right with God. Number two, be determined to find what God intended. Number three, get the most accurate text. Number four, look for the plain or the literal meaning of the text. I hope you never forget what I'm about to say to you. The text can never mean what it never meant. John talked about the author's intent. What was the author's intent? Another thing is, what are the meanings of the words? Lexical meaning, grammatical meaning, etymology of the word. Understand the grammatical structure. Understand the historical setting. Understand the geographical location. When I am reading 1 Timothy and I'm reading 2 Timothy, I happen to have been to Rome. I have happened to have been to the Mamertine prison. I have been to the limestone prison where this particular pastor wrote these words in a cell that was only a little bit larger than the pulpit that I'm speaking from. And he was placed in a pit and there was a grill over his head and he is looking up and he's almost certainly speaking to a scribe. Asking him to write these words down for Timothy. He's in Rome, and he's going to die, and Timothy is in Ephesus. He doesn't even know if the letter is going to make it, and so he, he begs him to come before winter, because in winter, the shipping lanes shut down in the Mediterranean, and he, he doesn't know if he's, he's going to make it in time. Understand the geographical location. Understand the cultural context. Understand the context that is right before you. And just like I said, in this particular passage, the theme is found in this passage. Hold on. I need you to hold on. It's important that you not give up. These are the things that will help you not give up. Understand the context, understand the individual passage, understand the related passage, interpret obscure passages in the light of passages that are perfectly plain. Chuck Smith said something that I will never forget. He said, never give up what you know for what you don't know. Never give up what you know for what you don't know. Somebody comes to you and says, well, what about this? I, I don't know. What about that? I don't know. I've devoted my life to answering people's Bible questions. And sometimes people will ask me things that I don't know. Explain to me why my husband's dead and your husband's still alive. I don't know. 
Explain to me why my six-year-old died of brain cancer and your six-year-old is still alive. I don't know. Explain to me about pain and suffering and the challenges and the setback. Help me understand. Help me, help me understand why your child is obedient to Christ and mine is disobedient to Christ. I don't know all of the answers. It's okay not to know everything. But where the Bible is clear, you can be clear. So always interpret what's unclear by what's clear. Well, are you saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? I mean, is there anything that you have to do? Well, if the Bible is true, if you're saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself, if it's the gift of God, then guess what? There is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing that you can do to appropriate salvation. Jesus does it. Interpret obscure passages in light of the ones that are clear. Interpret poetry as poetry, prose as prose, parables as parables. Dr. Lutzer alluded to that. Interpret what belongs to the Jew as belonging to the Jew, to the Christian as what belongs to the Christian, as what belongs to the Gentile, to the Gentile. Find the most exact and literal meaning of the text. Interpret the words in the verse according to its Bible usage. And remember, remember, remember that the Holy Spirit is the best interpreter of the Bible. So we study God's word. Listen carefully. We study God's word so that we will know God's will. Remember what Satan's strategy is. To make you ignorant of God's will. And if he can't make you ignorant of God's will, he's going to make you impatient with God's will. That's why it's important that you know God's will. And it's important that you understand that this is where it's found. We compare scripture with scripture. It was William Gurnall who said, false doctrines like false witnesses agree not among themselves. You've listened to John and you've listened to Dr. Lutzer. You've listened to me speak about this one passage and you're going, wait a minute, wait a minute. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. It's a lot of work. If you really want to know what God's word says, and if you really want to know what it means, and if God has called you to teach it, then you should give it the same sense of commitment that an athlete would to his sport or her sport, to a musician would would give to, to her music. Anything less is shameful. And so what does the word of truth include? All the scripture in general, John 17, 17. The gospels, most certainly Ephesians 1, 13. The word of truth is always, always, always colored by the teaching and the person of Jesus. Let me help you understand something. One of the most powerful and important things that you can do when you look at the text, having done everything that I just talked about, is put on your Jesus glasses and say, Lord, will you please help me to look at this text the way that you do and care about it the way that you do and talk about it in the way that you think is important. So he's given the first admonition and the second admonition, but he gives a third admonition, forsake false words. Look what it says in verse 16 and 17. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. You'll note that Paul isn't afraid to name names and knock down doors. 
The Bible teacher's preoccupation is with the word of truth, but we still, we still forsake those things that are profane and idle. Paul uses that term, kino, phonia. It only occurs here and in 1 Timothy 1.16, the prefix kinos. It means empty. For those of you who love theology, you've heard of the kenoptic uh, theology, the, the kenosis of how Jesus empties himself and how Jesus is fully God and fully man. That word kinos is that same word, empty. The suffix phone means sound. So literally the word means empty sounds. The New American Standard scholars decided to call this empty chatter. In both letters, Paul precedes it with the word biblos, profane. That means the opposite of sacred. Some scholars combine the adjective and the noun, and then they come up with godless chatter. For those of you who don't know what chatter is, if, if you were a kid and you ever played baseball, if you ever played a position, you know you're in the outfield and the batter gets up and you go, hey, hey, swing, that's chatter. It's kind of just noise. It's noise. Paul is contrasting godless noise and God-filled talk. Does Paul condemn small talk or marketplace conversation? No. If Paul were here and I said, you know what, I'm so sorry the saints are out of the playoffs. Paul would go, I like their name. Saints. Wow. Embracing destructive heresies doesn't lead to godly edification. It only leads to more ungodliness. Paul is condemning disputes and arguments. He's condemning critics and heretics. Heresy can't save you. Heresy won't sanctify you. It's Paul's second warning. Learning has value. A constant focus on false doctrine or unhealthy trivialities is going to exact a terrible toll. And make no mistake about it, I love the subject of apologetics. And I've devoted a great deal of my life to the subject of apologetics. But guess what? If you'll actually teach the Bible, there are going to be equal amounts of prophecy and edification and maturity and encouragement. This is the value of teaching all of the Bible. Learning has value, but a constant focus on the trivial will eventually take a terrible toll. The false teacher or the person who champions the trivial can only make ungodly progress. And so what's the message that spreads like cancer? For Paul, speaking to Timothy, it's it's the false teaching that the resurrection has already taken place. The word that Paul uses to describe a deadly disease that results in death in verse 17, translated cancer, is literally more commonly associated in the ancient world with gangrene. You have a penetrating wound. Your wound becomes pussy. Your flesh turns green. And the only way to save your body is to cut it off. And that's why Paul is using the metaphor. He's saying we can't have this. He gives an example of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Who are these guys? They're both mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20 along with Alexander the coppersmith. Paul had handed these men over to Satan and put them out of the church. He put them out of the church to reduce their influence and to protect God's people. Because guess what, Bible teacher? You have a responsibility to guide and to guard. And who are those who have strayed from the truth? Again, Paul gives an example of their false teaching. The resurrection is already past. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says, we he says, we affirm that the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead is essential to the gospel. 
1 Corinthians 6.14, by his power, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. The Lord will raise Jesus from the dead, and, G- and we will be raised from the dead. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then you are still in your sin, and you are unsaved. So what is it exactly that the false teachers are denying? It would appear that they're denying the reality of the believer's bodily resurrection. And some scholars suggest they may, they may not have specifically denied Christ's resurrection, but they may have been asserting that the believer, all the believer needs to do is to identify with Jesus, just identify with him in his death and this mystical, mythical resurrection. But there's no need to embrace the literal, physical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. But the reality is that if Jesus hasn't really risen from the dead, then he's a liar. And the apostles are liars. And Paul is a liar. And so Paul describes the consequence of their false teacher. They overthrow the faith of some. I think this is a reference to those who don't have genuine saving faith. In other words, they overthrow the faith of some. Genuine saving faith perseveres. Genuine saving faith perseveres. Many people claim to have faith. There is a faith. There's a kind of a saving faith and there's a kind of a false faith that collapses under any kind of pressure. And so the false teacher that denies something that's vital and essential to biblical Christianity puts the whole body at risk. That's why this is important. This is why this is important. This is why it's not just important to read your Bible. You have to read it with a desire to understand its message. You have to read it like a child in faith and humility. You have to read it and then believe what it says The reason must bow before revelation. I remember hearing a person say, after studying the Bible for over 500 hours, I've come to the conclusion that it's the most miserable, wicked hoax in the history of humanity. Or it's the most life-giving hoax message that has ever been given. If what the Bible says is true about you, then you can receive forgiveness of sin. Your heart can be cleansed. You can be reconciled to God. You can live forever. All scripture is given by God and is profitable. There's still value To begin at the beginning and read to the end. Compare scripture with scripture. Read the Bible fairly and honestly. And as a general rule, the passage is going to mean exactly what it appears to mean. Something as simple as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Can you believe it? The whole book... The whole book is about Jesus. Every page, every chapter, he is there. And if you fail to see him there, read it again. Read it again. Read it again. Let's pray.